gospel according to St. John, the sixth chapter. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. The assembly may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Life is full of difficult choices. Life is full of difficult teachings and difficult lessons. Some of them you only learn by experience, right? Like spit in the wind. Don't do that, right? That's an early lesson I learned in life. Just don't, don't do it, right? Or that sometimes life isn't fair. A tough lesson to learn, but certainly one that, that is helpful throughout our lives. Uh, anything to do with math was always hard for me to learn, if I'm being perfectly honest. There is a reason I'm a pastor. We only have to count to the Holy Trinity, right? I only got to go to three, and that's it. And some of these lessons, though, some of the teachings that we receive in life are matters of, as it turns out, life and death. Certainly that was the case during my unit of CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education, a requirement to become an ordained minister in the ELCA, a three-month intensive sort of internship, as you will, as a chaplain, and I served my CPE unit at Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge, the very hospital I was born at, so it was a homecoming of sorts, as you will. And during that summer, there was a lot of difficult teaching going on. There's There's spiritual formation, theological reflection, not just with other Lutheran pastors, but with people of different faith backgrounds, both within and beyond Christianity. And certainly, certainly, there was a lot of sort of learning, a crash course, if you will, of pastoral care and self-care. And those things I learned very quickly oftentimes go in hand, especially when facing the realities of death. A reality that, as it turns out, you face quite often in that clinical setting of a hospital. Now, 
My experience of death and dying previously, for lack of a better phrase, was rather sanitized, right? It was always well choreographed by the funeral home director, or it was a funeral service for a loved one performed by the pastor, where we're all gathered in our nicest clothes and do all the things we're expected to do. Very buttoned up, very neat, and very tidy. And one of the things I realized was that's not that experience in a clinical setting. In a hospital, things aren't all neat and tidy. Things aren't always what I was used to. And that, you see, itself was a struggle. I wasn't prepared to be called into a room to hold the hand of a person, a complete stranger, as they took their last breaths. I wasn't prepared for the emergency department doctors to look at me and say, well, chaplain, you get to call the family and give them the news. I wasn't prepared, as it turns out, to be the one called upon to speak words into a stranger's unspeakable grief. And yet, that was the task. In fact, that was the first lesson. The first lesson was sometimes less is more. Sometimes you don't need to talk. And I know this might be shocking. That was a hard lesson for me to learn. I'm just going to admit that, right? I know you all were thinking. I'm just going to say it, right? Pastor, how could you be quiet? Well, I learned very quickly. Because you see, our unit leader made it very clear that in times of grief, sometimes silence is all that God is calling us to do. To simply be present with one another and to listen for God's presence among us. Indeed, sometimes just a few words can speak volumes. Certainly the case with one particular night where I was the on-call chaplain for the entire hospital. I had the 12 midnight to 8 a.m. call. So I got in at about 11.45 at night with a post-it note sitting there on the computer in the spiritual care office that just said, I'm up on 4th. It's never a good sign when the person handing off to you isn't waiting to leave in the office. That was a lesson I learned very quickly. So I got myself together and put on my badge and got myself up to the fourth floor and quickly found my colleague. My colleague at that point gave me the look. And so quickly I walked up and we began discussing and he informed me that not one but two separate people had died on the same floor within minutes of each other. And he was helping to process. And when I say process, I mean that in many ways. He was helping these families to process their grief, to process that moment, which will forever change their lives, but also literally to help process the paperwork. One of the roles of the chaplains at Lutheran General was to be the go-between, to process all the paperwork necessary to ensure people went where they belong. So to process not only with the family and the care team, but even with the funeral homes coming in. So there I was, two people on the same floor at the same time. And by the time I left the floor, many, many, many hours later, four people had died that evening on that floor. Four people. At one point, I found myself standing at the nurse's station, and I threw my hands up and said, look, guys, I got to ask, who is going to make it through the night tonight? Because right now, I'm not convinced any of us are. And I meant it as a joke, but I kind of meant it seriously. And the care team threw their hands up and said, sometimes, Pastor, this is what happens. And so there we were, 
family, from room to room to room, trying to be present for each and every one of those families. And by the time my shift was over at 8 a.m., I've never been more exhausted. I've never been more fulfilled. And I've never been more frustrated in my life. That morning, you see, at our regular group session, we would normally break down the previous nights on call. And well, let me tell you, friends, I had a few stories to tell. And we sat there. And I started to process out what had happened. And it hit me that the thing that bothered me the most was that I felt like a failure because I couldn't be fully present for all of those families at the same time like I wanted. I could not be four places at the same time, and it drove me nuts because, in my mind, they needed me in that moment of emergency. And I had to come and go as time and allowed me to do so. That, you see, that was a struggle. And it was in that frustration, it was at that realization that our unit leader leaned back and said this, Zach, there's no such thing as a pastoral emergency. There's no such thing as a pastoral emergency. Why do I carry the pager? Why do I get called to the room when things go bad? What do you mean there's no pastoral emergencies? I got into this ministry because I wanted to help people in times of need in emergencies and you're telling me that there's no such thing as a pastoral emergency? That's ridiculous. That's offensive. Why are we bothering then? Why are we here? They needed me. And she laughed and she said, well, did they? She said, let's ask this question. She goes, was you being in the room going to keep them physically alive? And I said, oh, no, you don't want me putting Band-Aids on you let alone trying to keep you alive. She said, well, and it seems to me that even the medical staff couldn't do that in that moment. I said, okay, sure, so me being there wasn't going to keep people alive, but certainly I was there for the spiritual side. And she goes, let me ask you this. If you didn't show up, did those people still receive the gift of eternal salvation? I guess, theologically, yes. Me praying with them in their last moments didn't change the fact that God loved them eternally, that they were forgiven of all their sins and promised eternal life with Christ. No, I guess not. Okay, very good. I just wanted to remind you of those things. And it was in that moment that I realized that I thought a lot more about myself than what I should have, if I'm being honest. Because in my mind, God's presence was contingent upon my presence. And that is not how it works. I am not the presence of God. We, body of Christ, are the presence of God. God was present in that room long before I ever came in and long after I ever left and is still a presence long after in the lives of those family members. But that was a difficult night. It was an even more difficult morning as I had to wrestle with these new realities, but it was those lessons that have continued to inform my ministry, and if I'm being honest, my faith is an individual. And the reason I share that story is because as I read the gospel this week, what I heard was a group of faithful people, of disciples, struggling with difficult teachings with difficult lessons, trying to make sense of the world around him and their place in it, their call as a follower of Christ. And I feel terrible for these disciples because it's hard to have to wrestle with difficult teachings. I mean, think about it for a moment. Over the course of the last weeks, 
They've had to wrestle with the reality of God incarnate in flesh and blood as the bread of life standing before them. A theologically challenging concept both then as well as now. Then, after that, they have to wrestle with this idea that they are to consume, to munch on the flesh and blood of this God incarnate. Again, they say that this is offensive. Not only is it difficult, but this is an offensive teaching to these people. And they are facing these difficult teachings, and they then, therefore, have to make a choice. Some of them, as it turns out, choose to complain. Some of them choose to turn away, and some of them even choose to go ahead and betray Jesus. But others, namely the twelve, choose differently. They choose to stick around. They choose to stay. They choose to keep following. What I think is interesting is even though in this moment they choose to stay and to follow, I want to remind you that later they're going to complain. Of course they're going to complain. Some of them are going to turn their backs and walk away, right? And one of them is even going to go as far as to betray. So even while they're staying in the moment, we know that they're going to do these very same things as well. They're going to do those same things. But in this moment, in this moment, they speak these words. Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. Those are really powerful words. What I hear first is an exasperated request for guidance. Lord, where else can we go? There's nothing else. You're all we have. To whom shall we go? We don't have another place to go. All we have is you. So hopefully you is right. At the same time, though, it's a proclamation of faith. You, you the one who we have to follow, have the words of eternal life. See, God shows them. God chooses us to follow. God chooses all of us. We've all been elected. But in that election, we have a choice to make as well. Some days we may complain. Some days we may turn the other way and walk away. Some days our actions may even betray our very faith. And yet, yet, the God who has the words of eternal life still abides in and with us and around us, still calls us together as the people of God. And it's a difficult choice to follow God, to follow Christ. Because, you see, the ways of Christ, the way of God's kingdom, love and mercy and grace, really do conflict quite often with the ways of the world. Division, hatred, and self-centeredness. In so many ways, God's kingdom is offensive to the ways in which our world works. And that's what makes the decision, the choice to follow, sometimes not such a popular one. And yet, we are called to do it. Because we trust. We trust that if we follow Christ, Christ will continue to follow us, wherever we may be, good times and bad, in times of life's celebration and even in times of death. And especially, in those times of death, it's important that we be reminded that Christ has the words of eternal life. Those life-giving words are ours no matter where we go and no matter who is present because God is always present. Thanks be to God. Amen.